I'm David Brent Johnson, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guests today are jazz musicians Rachel and Sarah Caswell. Rachel and Sarah both grew up in Bloomington, attended the IU Jacobs School of Music, studied under the music school's jazz studies leader David Baker, and often performed together. Sarah, a violinist, left Bloomington shortly after graduating and has become an increasingly recognized name in the jazz world, touring with Grammy winner Esperanza Spalding, recording with Grammy nominee Rosanna Vitro, and placing in Jazz Time's Top 5 Jazz Violinist Reader's Poll. Rachel Caswell, a singer, has remained in Bloomington, working at Indiana University's Archives of Traditional Music and teaching jazz vocal master classes at schools and institutions across America. The two sisters have continued to perform together and have recorded together as well, appearing on each other's CDs, Sarah's first song and But Beautiful, and Rachel's Some Other Time. Their CD, Alive in the Singing Air, is the first released under both of their names. Rachel and Sarah, thank you for being here today. Thanks, David. It's great to be here. You grew up in a household with two musicologists for parents. Can you talk about what the atmosphere in your childhood home was like? I sometimes joke that we were doomed <laughs> if we had if, uh, with two musicologist parents, but it was always a, such a, a lively uh, environment in terms of the d- music always being a part of our everyday activity. Our mother uh, is a wonderful pianist and accompanist, and she would always uh, practice with us and play with us, and we would play trios uh, when, back when I played cello. And uh, our father was a lively singer and uh, choral musician, and so that was another passion that I developed through him. Uh, but then we also had like a really neat chronological chart of music history that like hung in the kitchen, which is probably not the normal thing that most people have in their homes. That. Music mm. history at a glance, hanging in our dining room, you know. <laughs> no, it was it was it was a wonderful experience that I you know, surely when you're growing up in that kind of environment you don't necessarily think it's unusual. I mean you're just you you accept what you're surrounded by and, and certainly having music constantly, you know, and either um, being practiced or or studied, researched or just, you know, playing in the background. It was just it was something that was always part of our, our environment. And um, so whether you're consciously listening to it or just are aware that it's there, you're you're soaking it in and soaking it up. And um, certainly that's, um, you know, it's had a big influence on on how we've developed and how we view music and how we value music. So for you two, it's almost like breathing. It's just part of the environment. Absolutely. (laughs) Rachel, how and when did you start singing? The first, I think, public performance I ever did was in high school. I sang Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy with a trio of, (laughs) in a trio. (laughs) Do you remember that? I I had the little military... I had to get a little costume and everything. Um, that's the first time I remember ever doing anything public. Uh, I had been a choral singer. I had been active. I knew I could sing. I knew I had a nice voice, but didn't really start thinking about it until high school. And then I sort of put it aside again for a while. And then by the time I was a junior in college, uh, I was doing more and more singing. And, and I had started doing some duos with Marcos Cavalcanch, if a wonderful Brazilian guitarist who was here in school at the same time. And, and by the time I graduated, I, I really felt as though singing was going to be my new direction for what I wanted to do with my professional activities. Did you play instruments before you started singing? Yes. I, well, I, my bachelor's degree is actually in cello performance and jazz studies. And I also played piano from the time I was about five years old. Played oboe in the high school symphonic <laughs> band. <laughs> played in the drum line <laughs> of the marching yeah, band. Yeah, I remember her practicing. For, you know, she was playing quads. And uh, the only way she could practice it was outside. You know, So she, we're in the middle of the woods and here you hear... <laughs> 
<laughs> Pretty crazy. Yeah. So my 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 background in terms of different things I experimented with is a, is quite a bit more broad than Sarah. Sarah pretty much found the violin at age five and just pretty much stuck with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, mom mom did try to teach me some piano, but. There was it was pretty pretty evident very early on that I wasn't going to have any future with that. So I barely passed my piano proficiency when I auditioned here at IU. So very telling. How did you? It's, how did you take up playing violin? What was your first experience with it? You know, it was funny. Um, I well, I remember vividly the the day that we went to go pick up the violin. It was from Ola Dahl's Violin Shop, which was over behind uh, what is now you know Mother Bear's Pizza and all that little string of shops. And um, so we went over to the uh, to the violin shop, picked up this itty bitty fiddle. I don't know what was maybe like an eighth size or so. It was five and a half at the time. So. Um, so we pick up the violin, and I remember sitting in the Honda wagon that Mom owned. I was in the left side, back seat, behind the driver. <laughs> We're driving home. Everything's cool. And um, get home. I take the violin out of the case. I mean, I was super excited. It was like Christmas morning. I was like, oh, my gosh, this this instrument that I get to play. And I picked it up, and I think I either pitched or bowed um, A-A-E-E. And the first thing that went into you know entered my mind was, oh my gosh, this is Twinkle Twinkle, and then I that that joy and exhilaration was immediately uh, replaced by frustration because I couldn't figure out how to get the F sharp. <laughs> I was like, oh, what do I do? What do I do? Um, so those I remember those those first few notes and just immediately being drawn into the instrument and this you know making music and and um, yeah that was that was the path from then on out. How did growing up in Bloomington shape each of you as as pe- both people and as musicians? Well, it's it's unavoidable to to see the effects in us that having the school of music as basically our second home. You know, if if Sarah would have lessons and Mom would like drop me off at the music library, so I would hang out at the music library. And even before our own memories, we were we were living and and being involved. With the School of Music, we had all, all of our teachers were professors at the School of Music. I was taking lessons with Helga Winold. Sarah was taking lessons with, first with Rebecca Henry of the of the uh, Suzuki program, and then with Mimi Zweig, and then with Gingold. and then Joseph Gingold. And so it's those those were our our teachers, but also our friends and our mentors. And it's just sort of everything gets thrown in together and it just becomes your life. So it's it feels like a second home, particularly the School of Music. But then Bloomington itself being such a neat place, a vibrant place, lively with students, lively with art, lively with a community that cares about each other. It's just such a neat place. And and our high school band program was just amazing. And to get to have that as part of our activities and our orchestra program was great at our high school. So it's a, it's a special place. And then also being so close to the country and, and we grew up out in the country, out in the woods. And so getting to have that sort of combination of like a rural life, but also having all these wonderful opportunities, it's just a really, really neat place. What was it like for you guys growing up as children and, and teenagers and also being musicians? I mean, because musicians have to practice and practice and practice so much. I mean, I've, I've, I've had musician friends when they were younger. That, I mean, all they basically seemed to do was practice. If they weren't in school or weren't in classes, they practiced. <laughs> I mean, did you guys ever feel like you were missing out at all on, on aspects of childhood or adolescence? Or what, what's it like having that kind of intense, uh, you know, regimen at, at, at such a young age? It was interesting. <laughs> no, but, it, you know, first of all, I mean, there were no regrets. And I certainly don't feel as though I missed out on anything because if 
doing anything differently would mean obviously I, I would be doing something else, and I can't imagine doing anything else than what I'm doing. So every, you know, the, whatever led to that, you know, to me being here and doing, you know, working with the musicians I'm working with, I wouldn't trade that in for anything. Um, but it, you know, there were it was definitely a challenge. I think um, I I didn't notice it as much because you know I was just simply you know. As a kid, you do what your parents tell you to do for the most part. Um, but I know for them it was certainly a challenge trying to strategize schedules and, and everything else. But, you know, I remember when I was in elementary school, that was probably the most challenging um, uh, segment uh, to to arrange because um, I would have to take violin lessons before school. So that meant I would come over here to, to have a, a lesson with Mimi at 7 a.m., um, so, you know, 7 to 7.45, and then I'd be late, you know, 15 minutes late for the start of school, you know, and then as soon as school was finished, then I'd run home and do my homework and then practice. So it was definitely, um, it was a full day, uh, but what was great was that mom and dad also were aware that I needed to be a kid, you know, and, and go out and hang out with my friends and, and go to parties and, and um, have sleepovers and those kinds of things. So as intensive as the schedule was as far as musical discipline and, and also, of course, academic, you know, through school, they were well aware of, you know, just making sure we had that downtime to just be who we were apart from our music. In high school, it was a little easier because a lot of our friends were um, also involved with music and we were involved with the band program. And, and the orchestra program, so it was much more of a of a social integration between our music and and uh, our social life. Did you guys both go to Bloomington North? Yep. You both yeah, university. With Stockhouse. Yeah, University Elementary, Tri North Middle School, and Bloomington High School North. Yeah. Well, and it's just great music in all three places. Um, uh, Sarah Stevens uh, was a wonderful elementary school music teacher uh, we and, and a good friend. She had studied with our dad uh, at IU, and, and so she was a wonderful nurturing person at that early stage in public school music. And Bob Austin at Tri-North was a wonderful band director and had a good jazz band for middle school. And uh, and then obviously going into Janice's program, and she's such a passionate uh, advocate for jazz in the public schools. Um, and Jane Gauker with the orchestra program, and she, she directs all the orchestra programs for the whole county. You both have been involved in, in workshops around the country and, and have done a fair amount of traveling. Is is the kind of situation that you grew up in in Bloomington that you're describing, is that unusual to have that much institutional support for jazz and for music for kids? I think we see it in pockets. It just depends on whether or not you happen to have a, a passionate advocate. And it's like there's going to be good teachers and, and not as great teachers. I think there's probably a, a higher probability of having good music directors just because it's such a hard road to travel and you're always having to fight for every bit of budget dollar. <laughs> so I think the people that wind up sticking with public school education tend to be the most passionate people at any rate. So I think that there's a higher probability of having excellent music programs, but to have those real star programs like Janice has, um, we do find them in little bits of, in, yeah, in areas, but it there's just certainly, depends. There's a certainly, uh, I think within college towns, like small college towns, you know, places like Ann Arbor, Michigan, and, and Madison, Wisconsin, there might be a, a little bit more of a common thread that you find, you know, um, common traits that are uh, that are found in those towns um, where, yeah, you, ha- you usually have pretty strong public school systems where the, the and the and the communal um, investment 
in those mm-hmm. public schools and how they tie into the universities that are really, the, you know, in a lot of ways, the center of those of those towns. It seems like a lot of times these days when there are budgetary problems and issues and everything, that it is arts programs that often, you know, yeah, that's sadly, where the yes. axe falls <laughs> first. Yeah. What would you say is the value of studying and uh, performing music as a child and an adolescent, even if it doesn't lead to a performing career as it has for both of you? Well, I think it makes it makes people better citizens. It makes people better contributors um, to their communities. Because if somebody is passionate for the arts in general, they're going to be consumers of the arts and they're going to see the beauty in other people doing that. And then they may, they may also pursue it as a hobby or as a hobbyist and community groups and things like that. So I think what it, it just, it makes people better community members long term and it, it, it increases the the artistic value of any community and that just that raises the quality of life anywhere you go. Well we're going to hear some music now that uh, that you both brought along today. Uh, Rachel, this is uh, your pick. Uh, what is it that we're going to hear and, and why did you choose it? I chose this uh, which is my absolute favorite singer Nancy King. I, I brought it because I think not too many people are familiar with her, and a lot of her best recordings are out of print. And so this is one of the things that's out of print. Um, This is a recording she did with her longtime collaborator, Glenn Moore, bassist, uh, and it's called St. Thomas, Sonny Rollins' St. Thomas. And it's just a tour de force in like two minutes and 50 seconds, and she's just amazing. Well, let's listen to that now. Nancy King performing St. Thomas from her CD, Potato Radio. Find an escape from all those city time blues. No cul-de-sacs, no broken backs. It's just a relax down St. Thomas Way. I'm trading the city for a tropical dream. And if you meet anyone who's asking for me, tell all you meet that they can reach me. That was vocalist Nancy King performing St. Thomas from her CD, Potato Radio. Uh, so, uh, Rachel, is it safe to say that Nancy King is, is one of your big artistic influences? <laughs> yes. It's funny. I was looking through... Uh, I was looking through her recordings and I realized how many tunes that I like to perform now are things that I first heard her do um, and that I've been inspired. And I've taken the tunes in my own direction, but it's something I first heard her do. And, I, and we've rec- I've recorded several of her compositions as well. She lives in Portland, Oregon. Um, she's very well known in the Pacific Northwest doing a lot of uh, – she has weekly gigs and then she does a lot of festivals and different types of workshops. Uh, and among the singer community, she's she's quite well known. But outside of the community of vocalists and singers uh, in the jazz world, she's not as well known. She's just really amazing. So you're, it's, you're starting to be able to get some of her stuff, uh, and she's issued some of her stuff on her own label and things like that. But uh, I'd, I'd always encourage people to seek her out because she's just amazing. Sarah, who would you cite as, a, as an artistic influencer, too, that was important to you? 
Well, growing up, uh, my teacher, our teacher, uh, David Baker, uh, was turning me on to to horn players right away. Well, I think the first solo I ever transcribed was Miles Davis. And that first sound, that first transcription, always, uh, they they live with you for a very long time. And um, the influence that he's had um, on my playing as far as the lyricism is concerned and just his, um, his approach to just how to create lines and, and how to use space and um, just to really create an emotion and create a vibe has been something that's always uh, been part of, of what I what I do with my music. And the same thing could be said about Bill Evans. Uh, it was, again, I transcribed him very early on in, uh, you know, in my studies and um, have always gravitated to that sensitivity and emotion that he brings to his playing. What is it in a piece of music, either uh, a recorded piece of music that you're hearing or a live performance that you're hearing, uh, that, that the two of you find most compelling? What, what really grabs you? What makes you feel like uh, music is really stimulating you or working on some level? I think it, it winds up being a combination of things. I mean, it's if, we're both drawn towards lyricism in a lot of things because in our playing together, we look for these beautiful soaring melodies and things like that but then if something's got an amazing harmonic structure underneath it if it goes in interesting directions and it surprises you and challenges you that that can be wonderful but then something that just like has like the best groove ever (laughs) that just like draws you in and won't let you stop moving I think that there's just so many different things that we find interesting and and something else I'm also looking for is is how the performers present what they do even if I don't understand or have necessarily a, a, an aesthetic connection to what's being what's being performed, if I'm seeing passion and genuine uh, love for what they're doing and and the audience's presence and engagement in that creativity, then that really has a big impact on me because I can see someone perform, hear someone perform who's got chops to burn, who's got just the most amazing creative approach to what they do, and they're just doing you know incredible innovative stuff but if i don't really feel as though they're engaged and that they're that they're appreciative of the audience's participation in in that particular performance then there's a it's hard for me to really truly get into what it is that they're doing um because i you know certainly we both you know so value and, and realize how important the audience's presence and participation is in a performance and as much fun as we might be having and as much investment as we're putting into you know emotional and physical investment we're putting into a project if um you know the audience isn't there it's some there's something missing and uh and that's just such an important part of what's going on and um yeah i, I see a lot of musicians play who just, they don't really seem to care they can, they're doing it because they can they're not doing it because they have to or they want to. Um, so that's a really important part of the whole picture for me, too. What what drew the two of you to, to jazz? I don't know. I think it's just one of those, maybe it's serendipity. Maybe it's just what, maybe it was just the fact that we were here and our dad was friends with David Baker. Maybe it was just that we got exposed to so many different things. And, and jazz is what wound up speaking to us most directly but I think that there is such uh, jazz is such a wide field of styles and a wide field it represents such a a wide field of creativity and I think it combines our our skills in terms of have being able to have those lyrical moments and and really being expressive but also 
having those thinking moments and those passionate moments of trying to find like the most interesting improvisational moment, the most inspired improvisational moment that you can have. Um, so I think it just combines a lot of our innate skills in terms of of what it takes to be a jazz musician. And And I think that sometimes I think when we were working on our classical music, it's like your goal is to try to be perfect all the time. Like it's so much towards like every, everything trying to be perfect and you're, you're never going to get to perfect <laughs> and you can try to, and you know, the goal is to try to, to get there. But, uh, there's, there's something in the, in the jazz world that is, you're always trying to be the best you can be, but you're also trying to be like the most inspired and the most creative. And it's, it's, it's a neat way to approach music. Yeah. I think, you know, people often compared, uh, you know, jazz that broad style to a language that um it's it's got its own vocabulary its own vernacular i mean there's always there's something that really uh you, when you're learning it you absorb it you immerse yourself in it just as, as you would a spoken language if you're trying to learn french or german and i think certainly um for me and i i think rachel would probably agree the idea that you know when you become fluent in a language enough that you really have something unique to say. Um, I feel as though jazz really is, is the ideal platform for that opportunity, that you, you're put into a context where you're working with other musicians and you have a, a chance to have that kind of musical conversation. You, who knows what you're going to be talking about? Well, you might have an idea based on a tune, but where that conversation may lead, where it goes, um, you never know from performance to performance. And I think that opportunity to really express yourself and to know that each day, each performance, each moment is going to bring something different and unexpected. It's the ultimate kind of freedom and blank canvas that you want when you become fluent in a in a language. You know, it's interesting you compare jazz to a to a language. Uh, it's you know, jazz is something that's been around now since the the early 1900s in one form or another. And uh, there's there's a recurring question that that always seems to pop up, particularly in the <laughs> jazz media and among people who listen to jazz and perform jazz and write about jazz and people who don't even really know much about jazz at all. And that's, is jazz dead? Um, <laughs> I, I, I wanted to ask what your take is on this and what do you think uh, will either revive or sustain the music, depending on what you think of the state of it. We did an interview with Ralph uh, Ralph Adams from WICR the other day, and he asked us exactly the same question. <laughs> and I and I I see that article when it comes up; it cycles around every you know three to five years <laughs> when the article pops back up. I think that uh, you can't stifle creativity; you can't stifle people's passion to express themselves. I think whatever you wind up calling it, whatever it winds up getting categorized as, whatever it winds up getting sold under, I think that changes and that varies. Uh, but I think that people are always going to be passionate and creative. And the types of the, the friends that we have in New York that are out writing amazing music and who are doing amazingly wonderful things, they're going to keep doing amazing and wonderful things. And I think that there will always be an audience for that kind of passion and that kind of creativity and that sort of authenticity. And I think, you know, the audience may vary. It may be small. It may be big. It may never be the commercial success that it was in the 1930s, but it will always be true and expressive and and as long as people are out there doing that, it's it's going to keep finding a life. What sorts of other music have influenced the two of you besides jazz? 
Well, let's see. This could be quite a lengthy list. <laughs> um, I think of of most recent interest has been um, some of the folk styles that um, you know, world folk styles that that involve violin in some capacity. I've uh, definitely been getting into uh, the the choro. Um, some of the technical elements that are involved with a lot of that sort of uh, Brazilian uh, South American music, I absolutely love it, and I'm just beginning to to dabble with uh, with that music quite a lot. I'm just having a wonderful time exploring. I actually recently, well, this is a brand new uh, brand new interest of mine, and that is um, it's actually. Th- been, I've been brought into it through an instrument that I tried. Um, I had a chance to play a Hardanger fiddle, which is the folk fiddle um, used in, in Norway. And uh, I had a chance to try a, a violin by a new maker um, in Norway who's making basically a, a five-string uh, Hardanger. Um, and I absolutely love the tone, the sound of it, the the um, the lyricism that the instrument demands as far as the sympathetic strings are involved and just what the technique that's involved in playing the instrument. So I think that's going to be another avenue I, I may explore, some of the, the Scandinavian folk fiddling styles to see what what melodies and, and techniques that are used in that performance tradition that I might uh, that, that might ring true to what I what I want to do with my music. Well, I think that a lot of singers in particular, are, we, we tend to gravitate towards um, the singer-songwriters. And I, I know that I grew up listening to a lot of Sting, just love him. Um, a lot of singers are drawn to people like Tom Waits. Anywhere that there is good poetry being written and anywhere that there's good tunes being written, I think that that's where we tend to draw things from. So, you know, whether it's whether it's Stevie Wonder or the Beatles or, or, or Sting or... A friend of yours, or people are doing Rufus Wainwright. You know, it's just where there's just anywhere you can find stuff, and that winds up influencing you. And whether you perform it or whether you just absorb it and it comes out in some other way, uh, there's just so many different uh, things to draw from. We're going to hear some more music now that uh, that the two of you brought along today, Sarah. This is a track that you picked. Uh, can you tell us what we're going to hear and, and why you chose it? Mm-hmm. Uh, the selection that I've chosen uh, is a, an original composition by uh, by my my dear friend, and um, she's just an amazing uh, flugelhorn uh, and com- flugelhorn player and composer. Her name is Nadia Nordhaus, and uh, I actually first got to know her when we were um, in school together at Manhattan School of Music. She was just finishing up her grad degree, and I was starting mine, and we became fast friends. Uh, and it wasn't about until maybe three or four years later that we actually really had a chance to play together. And her compositions just you know, just totally blew my mind. Um, just so beautifully written and so skillfully crafted, but in such a beautifully subtle way. Um, so I, I was absolutely thrilled when she asked me to uh, to be part of her her quintet and and specifically this uh, you know the, the quintet featured in this recording. And um, she's you know she's definitely an up and coming uh, uh, musician. She's uh, she was I think a finalist in the Thelonious Monk competition uh, a couple years ago in the, when it was uh, for trumpet players and um, she's from Australia so she definitely has a big following there and, and is getting a lot of recognition through her collaborations and uh, membership with uh, James uh, James Darcy Argue's Dar- Darcy, band. Darcy, Darcy, Darcy James, James Argue. Oh, his name is long but, yeah. I <laughs> but she's part of the Secret Society big band and is part of several other groups as well and um, this particular recording um, features uh, Jeff Keezer who was the pianist on on the recording, and um, the in, the composition is entitled "Water Crossing." 
Well, let's listen to it now. Nadia Nordhaus and Water Crossing from her CD of the same name. Listening to the music of Nadia Nordhaus, Water Crossing, uh, the title track of her CD. We've been speaking today with Rachel and Sarah Caswell. Rachel and Sarah, thank you so much for being with us. Thank, thank you. you. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. How did the two of you, Rachel and Sarah, obviously you grew up together, you were both uh, you know, playing music around the house, but how did the two of you end up performing together in uh, a live context? I went to, uh, I did my master's degree at Boston's New England Conservatory. And after I spent three years in Boston, I decided to come back to Bloomington. And Sarah was still here at the time, finishing up a performer diploma, yeah, an diploma. artist yeah. diploma, a number of things here. And so there, so we happened to be back in Bloomington together. And so some of it was just convenience that we were both here and we knew that we liked to play together. We had always played together as children and we we used to work weddings together. <laughs> well, we, we grew up playing music from you know, as soon as we were um, able to. Mom, our mom always found pieces that we could play together. Right. So from the you know from the first within the first year of us making yeah. uh, learning our instruments, we were making music together as a trio. Yeah. So some some of it was just a matter of that we were both back in the same place for mm-hmm. a time, but then we we started to develop material that that made sense to us and doing more local performances together, and then it just sort of grew from there where we all of a sudden had like a program and well you know a friend of ours who taught in Illinois said can you come do a thing with our big band and then somebody else who works you know somebody a friend of ours who taught at a college regionally said hey we're doing a recital series can you come over and do that and it just sort of kept snowballing and growing from that until we're like well we might as well just go ahead and perform as the Caswell sisters. Well, I, she, I remember one moment really where this I think this really started to enter our minds as a as a possible you know group that we would you know certainly be investing time uh, into and that was when she was doing her uh, graduate recital oh, yeah. at New England Conservatory, and um, she had me uh, fly. You know, she flew me out for that particular concert, and um, she had an, an amazing rhythm section. I think it was Helen Sung. You know, there was a great chemistry that she, certainly we were feeling with them, but we were also feeling with each other. And I think at that point, both in our personal maturity and our musical growth, we were at a place where we really could, uh, and you know experience music making um, and chamber music on another level. And uh, that was sort of the 
the gateway for us to really talk about what we might do together and how we might build a repertoire of material we could we could perform and share with people. It seems like a, a rather unique context, you know. I mean, that you guys are siblings, and you're a violinist, and 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 Rachel, you're a singer, and that that isn't a format that you necessarily see often in the jazz world as as a, a you know as a as a group, you know, a, <laughs> a sibling group that's also you know the 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 front people, in effect, are a singer and a violinist. It seems very unusual. <laughs> yeah. is, is that the, the case? It seems like more people are starting to use violin, and actually quite a few singers I know mm-hmm. are like are using violin because there's something beautiful about the, the combined lyricism of violin and voice. When Sarah and I describe it, we often sort of describe ourselves as a traditional jazz quintet, but our own take, you know, because we do, we will do material that is had originally been performed by trumpet and saxophone, and it still works for us. But then we also are able to take it in other directions and really play up the lyricism that, that we have as with our particular uh, voices. And there's almost any possibility. The, the field of jazz is so open, and you can just put together any combination of instruments practically <laughs> and and have, a, and have a, a great vehicle for expression. And this is just the one that that works for us. Yeah, I think it's another one of those circumstances where we don't necessarily see it as being unusual, but it's when other people make the comment, wow, voice and violin, that's, you know, that's not your usual pairing. It's like, oh, yeah, I guess it's not. <laughs> Just because, you know, we've, we've, we live in these shoes and we've, we choose to make the music who we, who we make music with. And, and obviously who we choose to collaborate with, they're wanting to work with us because they enjoy what we do, not necessarily because of, you know, only because of the uniqueness of our, of our instrument. It's, um, it's a combination that we feel very natural and very comfortable with. And we don't really necessarily, I don't necessarily think of it as unusual no. until mm-hmm. I actually kind of look out beyond and try to put myself in somebody else's shoes. How does uh, your relationship as sisters affect your relationship uh, for better or for worse as as performers? You say things to your sister that you would never say to another professional (laughs) colleague. (laughs) There's a certain level, there's a certain comfort level, both for good and for bad <laughs> you know and you're quicker to snap with your sibling than you or to quip at them than you might be with with somebody else but i think that anytime you have closeness with other musicians the longer you play with them the the more like family you wind up being so it's like a married couple you know yeah. it's never going to be perfect and rosy and everything else but it works <laughs> I, I think where we where we probably find maybe sometimes the most tension is not it doesn't have anything to do with the music it doesn't have anything to do with the bandstand it doesn't have anything to do with that it has to do with the business end of things because the business of being a musician is very challenging and uh, the schedule you have to keep and the tasks you have to sort of assign yourself to sort of keep on top of everything can be very stressful. And so I think sometimes we, Sarah and I have different working styles. Um, And so sometimes those are at odds with each other, but we, I think we are getting better and better at accommodating each other and and working together on the business end of things. But that's where you find the difficulty on the the music. It's never about the music, never, ever about the music, (laughs) or the fights at least. Well, you know, it it seems to take a lot to get by as a professional musician these days. Uh, it seems like that's a very challenging thing for anybody to undertake. Uh, what what all do you have to do to get by as a professional musician in in the current world? Well, it's it's certainly a do it yourself industry now. Um, I mean, certainly there are still people who are are able to kind of tap into 
maybe the older paradigm of, of uh, you know, record label representation and, you know, managerial and um, you know, publicity uh, support. Um, but really, for most musicians, jazz musicians that I know, we're all pretty much learning how to do, you know, all these different jobs ourselves. And while that's, uh, you know, it's a wonderful thing in a lot of ways as far as having that, you know, complete control over who you are, the, how your music is presented, how you as a person uh, uh, you know, and a musician, how you are presented... So while that's all wonderful, it's also so overwhelming because it's, you know, it's it's a full time job just to to you know to keep up your craft and to and certainly to be pushing yourself and and be you know grow, be growing as a musician and as an artist. So to to have time taken away from that, um, so much time taken away from that, just to keep you know keep the boat afloat, is um is is really taxing. And um, I hear from so many musicians how um, how frustrating it is that they they spend you know the bulk of their day in front of the computer and on the phone because they're having to you know contact X and Y and make sure all these logistics are taken care of. So yeah, you're you're be, you're your own booking agent, you're on your own manager, you're your own web designer, or you know you you're having Facebook and Twitter pages and things to update all the time. You know, and there, of course, there are constantly new resources that are coming into the into that whole circle, and it's you know you're wanting to be on top of it to know what tools are out there that could be of help, but you also don't want to necessarily jump on the bandwagon right away if you don't necessarily feel like it's going to help. So this you're having there's the music side and there's the business side, and unfortunately because of of all of the control really coming towards us, more time is being pulled toward the business. And so it's really about making sure that in your day you do what you can to, you know, just to make sure you're honoring your craft and putting all that other stuff away. You shut your computer down and you go over and you actually pick up your axe and play and make music and remember what it's all about. (laughs) As the Caswell sisters, what is uh, the most exciting gig you've ever had and what's probably the the worst gig you've ever had? Oh, dear. Well, I, we we did a we did a very nice week at Dizzy's Club Coca Cola. Uh, it was during the women in jazz. It was during the yeah, women the in jazz. Yeah, the Lincoln Center. Yeah. One of their music venues is um, the Dizzy's Club Coca Cola, which is the most intimate and you know maybe what you might envision for a jazz club. Beautiful place on on uh, Columbus, Columbus Circle, Circle overlooking Central Park. And we had a week there during their uh, Diet Coke Women in Jazz Festival, where they have a yeah. whole week dedicated, or it might be a whole month. Dedicated it, yeah. to um, to women uh, uh, jazz musicians. Yeah, and we and, shared the week with Rini Rosnes, which was really great. She was the headliner, and then we were the late night act. Right. And it was just a really, really fun opportunity to get to be in that that venue, in that intimate venue, and to get to to get such a positive response from what we were doing. And that was probably one of the more fun things we've done. And then we had a really wonderful performance at the. Uh, Jazz Education Network inaugural conference in St. Louis two, three years ago. And we were sort of a, I don't know if we were a gamble for them exactly. (laughs) They were very excited about our music and we were premiering some of the stuff that we wound up recording with Fred. Um, We were a gamble just because our names at that point, we know, didn't have as much weight as as some of the other folks who were there. But they felt we had a lot of... We had something to share and something to, and we got such wonderful responses from that concert, and we actually got quite a bit of work from that concert as well. Um, in terms of miserable concerts, there's probably too many to name. Not in terms of music, but just in terms of like circumstances. You know. Oh well, look, that sounds awful. With any gig, you have circumstances that present, you know, that come up that aren't ideal. 
whether it be maybe in the um, maybe in the rhythm section, like some some of the gigs we've done, we we can't bring our own rhythm section. So we've you know, musicians have been provided, and sometimes the musicians don't look at the music, or you know they just aren't maybe where we hope they might be technically. But um, or sometimes maybe the audience, even though we feel like we've maybe given a really great performance, maybe the audience um, is a little more disengaged for whatever reason. Maybe the music was a little too far out, or or whatever, you know, or maybe you know who knows. There could be anything that, with the logistics that don't aren't quite ideal maybe the sound sound guy yeah that sound guy (laughs) but you know that that's part of the gig and you don't let it ruffle your feathers you just sort of say oh well you know you just kind of laugh it off and make the best of it and I yeah so there are certainly lots of circumstances where it hasn't been ideal for whatever reason but you know we still I think we still try to focus on the joy we have making music together and you know whatever whatever blunders there might be you take those experiences and you learn and take it to the next gig and you you learn how to maybe avoid those circumstances down yeah. the line. I think I think the biggest challenge we sometimes face, like Sarah was saying, when we work with rhythm sections we don't that we don't know that are unknown to us, we walk in and and we don't they don't know exactly what to do with us. <laughs> and so what we'll do, especially if it's with working with older musicians, they won't necessarily talk to us like sometimes the rhythm section will talk only to the pianist that they've hired and we had that happen to us recently a lot of times singers they'll have their pianist be their musical director and they may not run the rehearsal but Sarah and I are very used to running our own stuff so we run our own rehearsals and we run our own uh, shows and there's also the youth factor too I mean we uh, genetics are working in our favor so our our skin is nice and (laughs) you know we so we look we're on the younger side of things and so I think there's also a tendency especially when you're working with musicians who who are uh, who are veterans in the field? They have there's you know they've been at least I mean they've been around for a long time. There's a little um, they don't know quite what to do with yeah. Us. It's they know how to maybe hang with the guys, but hanging with the girls, especially younger ones, it's yeah. there's a you know there's a little bit of an awkwardness that comes along with it. And usually it, after about 15 minutes, we they figure out that oh wait they actually do know what they're talking about, and we do need to talk with them and engage with them. And so usually we can turn people around within about 15. Crack minutes. a few jokes and everything's <laughs> fine. Well, you we're going to hear some music now from the first CD to put uh, be put out under both of your names as the Casual Sisters. The name of the CD is Alive in the Singing Air. Uh, what is it we're going to hear from the CD, and, and why did the two of you choose this particular track? Um, well, we chose Sweet Adelphi, which is a wonderful composition by uh, Christine Jensen. She's a Canadian alto saxophone player and band leader and composer. She's also the sister of Ingrid Jensen, the renowned trumpet player. And we've actually done, we've performed and recorded a couple of, of her tunes, and they really speak to us in terms of what she has to say. And then we always feel like we can take them in a new direction. And, and we've gotten a lot of really wonderful comments about this tune. It's a wordless tune, so it just allows our sounds to blend. And it just it's probably one of the more expressive tunes on the album in that way. Well, let's listen to it now. The Caswell Sisters performing Sweet Adelphi from the CD Alive in the Singing Air.
That was the Caswell sisters performing Sweet Adelphi from their CD, Alive in the Singing Air. I wanted to ask you guys, how does being a musician affect your personal relationships? I think what winds up happening is that you you tend to, in terms of your personal relationships, either friendships or uh, partners or whatever, you tend to gravitate towards other musicians, partly because those are the people that you're spending time with, but they're also going to be typically the people who understand what you go through in terms of trying to to be a musician. I I do also try to find friendships among people who have some other outside interests. So like I you know I have a lot of friends that are into cycling because that's a good distraction for me <laughs> from some of the musical activities. But in terms of probably my closest friends, they're people who value what I do and who understand what I do and so they tend to be other musicians. Yeah, same thing for me. You know, there's certainly I've got a circle of friends who are, you know, outside of my musical world. And I I value those friendships because it really in a lot of ways takes me out of my my music bubble. Um, and it's a very healthy thing sometimes. Um, but yeah, as far as those friendships, um, those really close friendships and certainly personal relationships. Yeah, the ones that are are you know, they're typically all musicians because, again, we, we know what's involved with um, each other's careers and, and you know, how crazy that can sometimes make us and, and how that might affect how our days are scheduled and, and what vacations we may or may not be able to take because of it and, and all these things. So I think, yeah, really the most healthy relationships are those with, uh, you know, with other musicians. Uh, your father, Austin Caswell, uh, passed away a few years ago. You guys have a, a composition uh, that you titled in honor of him called Professor ABC. How does uh, your memory of, of him kind of continue to inform you as as people and as musicians? He was our biggest fan. Um, we, we always knew where we could find him in an audience. Um, he was always the one who was hollering and cheering the loudest. And so I think that we always have that, and even though he's not here with us physically, that that spirit of support and energy and uh, unconditional love of what we do and of us it continues. And so I think you know, like we can sort of envision him in his favorite booth in Bears, and we can <laughs> envision him, you know, cheering and clapping and hollering from the from the balcony at any concert. And so I think that that's always there for us. It's the idea of of um, of living a passion driven life. Mm-hmm. You know, he he didn't necessarily he didn't need a lot materialistically. He was a very simple person as far as what he had. Um, but he absolutely adored teaching. He adored his family. He adored singing and he adored uh, bicycling. And those things really were what he loved and what he um love to do and love to be surrounded by. So I think that idea of, of just simply recognizing what keeps you uh, young and keeps you passionate uh, is something that both of us uh, value and certainly have drawn from, from having him as our dad. We've been speaking today with Rachel and Sarah Caswell. Rachel and Sarah, thank you so much for being with us. Thank, thank you. you. This is David Brent Johnson for Profiles. Thanks for listening. The program you just heard was recorded in February of 2013. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. 
Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.